0: Well, good morning, and thank you for your attendance. And what's supposed to be our last one of these, but we're welcome to run over to next week if we need to. Uh, It is March the 4th, if I'm right, and this is the adult forum. And uh, let's pray. The Lord be with you. Almighty God, whose loving hand has given us all we possess, grant us grace that we may honor you with our substance. And remembering the account which we must one day give, be faithful stewards of your bounty. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So uh, just to start out, if you have your packet, um, the, the, uh, the items that I gave you in preparation for today are really just pieces from the marriage rite. And um, hopefully th- this is helpful to you to review what it is we uh, sort of bless and what it is we celebrate in our current liturgy for marriage of any kind, and maybe this is helpful for you to hear, that when the National Church decided in 2015 that same-sex relationships could also be sacramental, that is that clergy were authorized by the National Church to no longer do blessings, but to now do the sacrament of marriage, the liturgy changed just a bit. So if you were to look through your prayer book, you can look at this online, right, because they try not to update the prayer book. It's been 42 years, you know. They try not to make new prayer books, but anyway, um, there will eventually be a new prayer book, which will be shocking, and people will probably have bumper stickers that say, (laughs) the only real prayer book, 1976, okay? Anyway, um, if you were to look through what's happened, is very little has changed in in the marriage liturgy, except that it says... Uh, will you accept so-and-so to be your husband, wife, spouse? And so there's, there's options. But otherwise, really nothing has changed. And I just think it's sort of helpful for us to think through at the outset what it is that we ask God uh, to do uh, in the marriage rite. And uh, I'm looking on this page that's from the prayer book here. These are the prayers that we pray all together after the vows have been made. Look with favor upon the world you've made, for which your son gave his life, and especially upon these persons whom you make one flesh in holy matrimony. Right, this is from the new rite, upon these two persons. Give them wisdom and devotion in the ordering of their common life, that each may be to the other a strength in need, a counselor in perplexity, a comfort in sorrow, and a companion in joy. Grant that their wills may be so knit together in your will and their spirits in your spirit that they may grow in love and peace with you and one another all the days of their lives. Give them grace when they hurt each other to recognize and acknowledge their fault and to seek each other's forgiveness and yours. Make their life together a sign of Christ's love to the sinful and broken world that unity may overcome estrangement, forgiveness heal guilt, and joy conquer despair. Then there's a bracketed prayer, and I can tell you in the 28 weddings that I have celebrated, I have never prayed this prayer. It says, bestow on them, if it is your will, the gift and heritage of children, and the grace to bring them up to know you, to love you, and to serve you. There's nothing wrong with the prayer, but most couples prefer to not have that at their liturgy, and it's optional. You can tell it's optional because in the rubric, this is a Xerox from the prayer book, there's this little line right here. Of course, you realize that bestowing on them, if it's your will, the gift and heritage of children is no longer exclusive to heterosexual couples. No longer. More about that in a second if you'd like. Give them such fulfillment of their mutual affection that they may reach out in love and concern for others. Grant that all married persons who have witnessed these vows may find their lives strengthened and their loyalties confirmed. Grant that the bonds of our common humanity by which all your children are united one to another and the living and the dead may be so transformed by your grace that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. What I think is helpful is to examine what our own liturgy says is sacramental about marriage. That's sort of where I wanted to start. Okay? The first is that when we come to sacraments and when we come to blessings, we ask for God to look with favor Upon the vows that we make. That's pretty reasonable, isn't it? Whether we're making the baptismal covenant or confirmation or marriage vows. We ask God to give a couple wisdom and devotion in the ordering of their common life so that we can be strength to one another, counselors, comforts, and companions in joy. If I were to ask you what's sacramental about your marriage, I'm suspicious. Many of you would highlight things from that. We ask that our our wills would be knit together in God's will, that we would grow in love and peace all the days of our lives. We ask for grace when we hurt each other to recognize and acknowledge our fault and to seek each other's forgiveness and God's. We ask that our lives would be a sign of Christ's love to a sinful and broken world, that unity would overcome estrangement, forgiveness heal guilt, and joy conquer despair. We ask for mutual affection to be so fulfilling that we would be nourished to reach out to those outside of our relationship. We ask that if children be in God's will and our own, the grace to bring them up to know God, love God, and serve God. And I want to ask you now if you heard anything regarding sexuality and those vows. Now, I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm not pushing an agenda. But I think this is really, really important. And what I'd like to do is tell you, frankly, what I do about marriage. Because <laughs> I do two or three of these a year. And I think I mentioned this to you last time, that in the United States we have a really interesting sort of legal approach in which we we kind of support this idea of separation in church and state, but when marriage happens, I, a religious entity who am separate from the state, serve as a state entity. So when I fill in a marriage license, I may do that in substitution of a judge. And on that blank, I'm called the official, The prayer book allows me to be an official, but it also allows me to use the word presider or celebrant. I try really hard not to officiate a marriage because a judge should do that. A judge is an official. I try to celebrate marriages. That is, I try to say to folks, even if I don't know the couple very well, I try to say, you all know what is worth celebrating in the love these two people have. That's why we're here, to to celebrate who they are for each other, how far they've come, and the trajectory that they aim to have, which is not even knowing where their lives will take them. They are making vows about how that life will look before you and before God. And that's a very celebration-rich thing to do. I've asked you hypotheticals before, and I think these are really important. And I would tell you almost anybody I know would be in favor of the following relationships. That is, what if there were a couple who could never physically consummate a relationship? That is, they could never sexually consummate a relationship, and they wanted to be married. So you're imagining somebody that's paralyzed from the chest down, but they were straight. Would that make a marriage in your mind? Most everybody says yes. Most everybody says yes. And, And that's an interesting thing to sort of think through reasonably is what is sacramental about their relationship and what their marriage looks like. Now, just to lay all my cards on the table, which I'm very, very happy to do, you know, a priest is able to consent or deny any marriage we like based on any criterion we choose. And what that means, really, according to the prayer book and to our polity and to our bishop, is that any couple can come and say, we'd like to be married, we'd like you to celebrate the wedding, and I can say no whenever I want. For better or for worse, that is, a mixed, a biracial couple could come and I could say, I don't believe in that, I'm not marrying you, and I won't be doing it and the bishop cannot call me out on that. As rector of your church, I not only decide what I can do, I decide what can be done here. That is, if you were to have an associate rector willing to do a biracial marriage and I were opposed to it, I can prevent it in the building. Does that make sense what I'm saying? By the way, I will not do that. (laughs) I just want you to know how the law reads. That is, the rector monitors the property for the bishop. The bishop cannot successfully oppose the rector about a marriage on the property even though the bishop holds the deed. Does that make sense what I'm saying? This is just our government. I've only had one marriage I've ever been asked to celebrate that I felt extremely uneasy about. And they went somewhere else (laughs) and i'm really grateful because i didn't know how i was going to say no in those days i just was super young and really wanted to say yes all the time and and i've realized that no's are sometimes appropriate i meet with couples sometimes who say you know we'd really like you to celebrate our marriage usually they use the word officiate whether it's here at St. Thomas or it's somewhere else. Quite often it's somewhere else. I don't know how these people come to me. I'm just going to let you know. I have people come to me I don't know who say, would you marry us? <laughs> often either their friends or their parents or their in-laws say like, oh, you should ask Father Mike. He'll marry you. And, and, and usually Father Mike will. <laughs> um, My criterion in marrying a couple, quite honestly, and and I tell this to every couple, is not that they're baptized. It's not that they're confirmed. It's that they go through premarital counseling and they have hopes of making it. (laughs) This may sound strange to you but i have married couples before and and i stand behind this decision still who when i ask them why is it important for you to have a priest or what involvement do you want for the church their answers have ranged from you know we just think the formality and the foundation of a church wedding is really important for our relationship even though we don't go to church to my mom and dad are really big believers and it would mean the world for them to have the church and God represented in our vow exchange to, you know, I go to church four times a week and I just can't imagine doing this without. I have had couples say lots of different things. I remember one couple in particular in which one of them said, you know, I'm not really religious, I am consider myself very spiritual. And another person say, you know, I was raised Mormon, but through my time at the day school here, we had an Episcopal day school, you know, I just felt this relationship to God that continues to inform me even though I continue to be Mormon. (laughs) And that was a yes for me. Because after four sessions of premarital counseling, they had a lot to celebrate. They knew their challenges, and they were prepared to overcome them. So this is this thing I think that we're asked to really get our heads around. How do marriages work? What's sacramental about them? And what can and should be sacramental about the marriages that happen in our sanctuary? Does that sort of make sense? I think that's our agenda for the day. Now somebody asked me last week, hey, Mike, you mentioned that. The vestry was interested in us having these conversations as a parish. Why was the vestry interested in that? (laughs) And that's a really great question. If you're on the vestry, would you be interested in responding to that question? You don't have to currently be on. You could have just gone off and you were involved in the idea that we should do this as a parish instead of just as a vestry. So reminder to you, canonically, I can do any marriage I want, Anywhere I want, with two exceptions. If a couple, one member of a couple has ever been divorced, I have to have the bishop's permission for any reason. If somebody's been widowed under any permission, but if if there's been a divorce, I have to have the bishop's permission. The second is that in the Diocese of Texas, any priest can marry any same-sex couple anywhere but the sanctuary without permission. However, what our bishop requires to use the sanctuary is the vestry's permission. Those are sort of the rules. (laughs) That is, Christ Hall can be used anytime with no one's permission. Brumley Hall, the narthex, The school wing, the playground, all of those are up to the rector, not the bishop. Does this make sense? The associate rector has no control over this at all. Belongs to the rector. You may not like it, it's the rules. I just want to make sure you know (laughs) what the rules are. Every church has its own strangeness. Okay, so those are sort of the rules, and I'm interested in if any vestry members would be willing to share why they wanted to have this conversation, because the vestry was in favor of doing it this
1: way. I'm not on the vestry now, but I was when the conversation began. Um, First of all, the vestry then were not of one mind about this issue, and I think perhaps still are not. Not being on the vestry, I don't know for sure. And so having these conversations on the vestry was a very helpful exercise for us in understanding different contexts for thinking about this issue. Uh, I was one of the ones who pushed quite hard to have these conversations with the parish because even though vestry members do not represent parishioners and therefore don't vote according to what you say, but instead according to their own consciences, this is a potentially polarizing and divisive issue. Um, Those of us who were in favor of having these conversations, I, I think I can speak for those, I can speak for myself, felt that this could divide the parish Uh, if it were done suddenly or if it seemed to have been done secretly and so we thought having conversations to share with you the kinds of context that we had in our own conversations would not only give you voice in talking about this issue at the parish level but also would help you understand the kind of of, um, discernment that we went through as a vestry in getting ready to make that decision.
2: I think my, uh, it boiled down when we started talking about this, uh, looking at St. Thomas in general, we wanted to be a welcoming, affirming church. That means we welcome everyone. Um, If we're going to do that, we can't say, okay, you can take sacrament, you go to Bible study, but you can't get married. That's not welcoming. You can't exclude... People because of, of one item so it was, um, it's important to me if we're going to welcome going to present ourselves a welcoming church that we welcome them for all activities all religious rites that the church can offer
0: any other vestry thoughts You absolutely are welcome to agree with the the vestry and of course our vestry people are published in our uh, weekly bulletin so that if you ever want to have a conversation with a vestry member you know who they are and vestry people are point people. These are these are people elected in a republican style government not to represent you but as representatives of you. (laughs) If that makes sense and saying to the vestry I think we still need more time or. I'm really grateful for you involving this conversation. Those are very appropriate things to do, just like you would do to your senator. Does does that make sense? Because that's how the vestry works, they're the Senate. I, I mean, they really are.
3: So you were talking about the rules of where you can marry somebody or not, and you can marry somebody here in Chris Hall. Mm-hmm. Well about 30 feet behind you is where Brenda and I are married, so this is still
0: our sanctuary. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting, what does that really mean? It, it is an interesting thing to think about, right? The, the Lord's table used to sit exactly here. And you can see a photograph right outside when you leave of Brenda and Rob being married here. And what we've had, of course, is the is the bishop consecrate that space when it was built and sort of, sort of deconsecrate this space, but it, it's not really deconsecrated, right? I mean, it's it's the church, and sacraments happen in here, like, this. I know this is in the prayer book, like parish meals and education, right? Are in which ways we outwardly participate in God's inward grace. <laughs> I know they're not in the seven, but surely those are external representations of God's, grace, and they continue to happen in Tall, So this is really a, 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 a great question. You know, um, I think it's important to get our heads around w- one or two more things before we sort of open up for a little bit more discussion, which is really what I'd like to do. Um, and, and we started this way, you know, I mean, frankly, you put a lot of trust in your rector, whoever she or he is, you put a lot of trust in your rector. And I think I asked two weeks ago, How many of you have been to a wedding that I've celebrated at St. Thomas? I've done three. At St. Thomas only. So nobody in the room has been, probably you've been to one. You and Jim have been to one. So out of our room full of people, and I estimate there to be 40 of us, two of us have been to a wedding at St. Thomas. And the real question is how is it that having not been at the wedding, having not known the couple, you're okay with it happening? Okay. If you don't know the couple and you don't come, why is it that you're okay with the wedding happening at St. Thomas that you don't know about?
4: Because I trust our rector.
2: You have made the decision which is
4: the law.
0: the Yeah, so this is really an interesting thing. Bob's saying no, he's got a different idea. I'd love to hear it. Episcopal
2: Church welcomes you. And I've been puzzling all this week ever since you uh, mentioned you could not think of any cases where God denied grace. When we deny the sacraments, we're in effect denying grace. And I'm trying to figure out how in the hell we got in the business of denying grace. The church. And I thought for a while that, you know, the the Episcopal Church, the Episcopal Church welcomes you, made us big fans of not denying grace. And I'm listening today, and I'm not hearing that discussion. I'm hearing about where do we draw the line, Mm -hmm. inside the sanctuary, outside the sanctuary. We shouldn't be in the business of denying grace. Mm -hmm. It's not about you. It's about that.
0: That's a really helpful perspective, and, and I again, I want to let you know that if I meet with a couple and I don't feel like there's much to celebrate about their relationship, I won't do it. <laughs> Does that, is that helpful to hear? But I don't think that's necessarily denying grace. I think that's saying, show me some grace to celebrate, <laughs> and I will do it. As I told you, that's happened almost one time. And I'll even tell you the particulars, because you don't know this couple, and you never will. The gentleman had been married for 25 years. His wife had died very suddenly, and six weeks later, he was ready to get married to a woman who didn't speak English. He did not speak Tagalog. It was a very confusing thing they were asking me to celebrate. I don't mean it didn't work out and shouldn't. It just seemed like very little I knew (laughs) was something praiseworthy, particularly because... I couldn't talk to her. (laughs) Uh, If we were going to go down the road, we were going to need an interpreter. I'll let you know that at my last church, this is a really interesting thing as well, and I tell this to every couple. I mean, you don't know this. It's good that you you hear this now. My last church charged for weddings. So if you wanted to be married at Christ Church Coronado, you were going to pay as a non-member one price and as a member another price. And the base price was... $450 for premarital counseling with a Ph.D. in psychology. We didn't do it. Categorically, we did not do premarital counseling as clergy. And then there was money for the flower and the organist and for the Rector's Discretionary Fund all built in. That was the price. We don't charge for weddings here, and I tell couples, I don't charge. I don't. And unlike Christchurch Coronado, which, to be honest with you, There was something really nice. I didn't charge for premarital counseling either. I do tell couples, my single criterion is that you do premarital counseling and the counselor finds you to be an acceptable match. And I tell people, I had one class in seminary about premarital counseling. I had one. It was called pastoral care. Guess what else we talked about? Funerals, (laughs) baptisms. (laughs) writing our own rights, writing rights for people who needs God's blessing in different areas, but for whom no right exists. I picked the stupid one. I just did. (laughs) I made up this right about what... (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm not going to embarrass myself and tell you. Anyway, (laughs) I treated the assignment contemptuously, and now I've come to realize how important that was, which means, friends... And and I went to the number one rated seminary in the United States. I was going to tell you. I spent about three hours preparing for premarital counseling. Now, since seminary, I've spent more time. And I do three weddings a year. I do more funerals than I do weddings. I do. I do, hopefully, more baptisms than I do weddings, right? But for the people getting married... Marriage is really important, and so it's important for me to celebrate what they have, so I tell couples, listen, you can have me for free, but you're going to get what you pay for, so I tell every couple, please, if it's within your time and your budget, go see a professional and get professional premarital counseling. I just say that up front. Maybe that's bad of me. I'm trying to get better at this. I've done it about seven times. Those marriages, thank God, are somehow still intact, (laughs) Right, uh, but it's difficult. Again, I w- w- I'm trained for this. None of my colleagues were trained for it either. I'm gonna tell you that right now. There's no premarital counseling class in any seminary I'm aware of. <sighs> so after three or four hours with the couple, right, that's where I make the judgment about what I can or can't celebrate. Again, I've done this a few times. Like seven. I'm getting ready to do it again for another couple starting. Next week, God help them. <laughs> you know, it's just, <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway. Sometimes it's really important to do it with me. Like, if somebody's been divorced, it's really important that when I write a letter to the bishop for, in this case, his permission to do the right, that I really know what I'm asking for. Does, does that make sense? And and this is how it works, which is rather hidden from everybody else, right? You would only know this if you wanted to get married right now. And, and that's that's sort of how we how we do it. But this, this question about about grace and openness to grace is a great question. Hang on, hang on, I need to use the microphone. You know, we need it for people listening at home. Ah,
4: Basically, it's a matter of when everything was still Catholic. Um, Sometime around the third century B.C., there was this pope who was really, really into regulations and codifying everything. He became very litigious, um, not unlike the Pharisees, and went through and because Europe had something of an overpopulation problem for their technology at the time, he started thinking up ways to deny marriages. He literally spent like a week writing a treatise on this thing. And unfortunately, we, even in the Protestant world, are still feeling sort of the trickle-down effects of that. And it takes a revelation and a change of viewpoint change the church and then a whole bunch of people have to agree on it and that takes time in any large group.
0: You know I think biblically there is a scripture in 1 Corinthians in which Paul says some people when they get together to have the Lord's Supper are eating and drinking it in an unworthy manner and if you grew up in a a sort of a more biblically based church you've heard this before if you haven't perhaps you've heard it in the lectionary by now And they say that some people, when they gather to eat the Lord's Supper, are frankly eating and drinking before everybody's there. It's like the potluck has just started, and they eat all the food. Potluck starts at 6, they're there at (laughs) 5. They eat everything, and there's nothing left. And then they say, oh, come have the Lord's Supper, and there's no food for them. And Paul says, when you do it this way, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And this, I think, is that key phrase biblically, that people who eat and drink in an unworthy manner, it's important, that's the phrase, are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. And what we've decided, I think, as a Catholic church with a small c, not even as a Roman church. Does this make sense what I'm saying? We pray for the Holy Catholic Church every week. We're talking small c, that's universal, because there are plenty of Protestant churches that have what are called closed communion. Do you know what this means? It means the pastor has to assess whether or not you can receive the sacrament because your intention may not be right. And if your intention's not right, the pastor has decided if you participate, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself because you are defiling the sacrament with your poor intention. By the way, our 28 prayer book is very concerned with that. You will see it in the liturgy this morning or you just came from it, we pray that people will partake in a worthy manner. How is someone deemed unworthy? This is great, right? So what we've come up with over, over a long time, right? And there's lots of criteria. And this is really important. One is that people take the Eucharist. This is going to sound very Roman Catholic to you. But, but was Catholic with the see for a long time is that people take the sacrament in a state of sin, that is, they have not confessed and been absolved, and to add to that, they haven't confessed, done their penance, and be absolved. Now that would include any sacrament, including baptism, marriage, unction, etc. It's not just the Eucharist, right? Because if they do that, they're treating the elements too lightly too lightly, and they're inviting the holy to come into their presence when they're not ready to receive it, and that defiles them, and somehow that defiles God. I mean, that's, that's the thinking. I, I, hope tha- I hope that makes sense. Whether you agree with it or not, I hope it makes sense. Because that's how most churches continue to operate. Just honestly, is that the churches are the guardians of grace. To make sure we don't give it away too freely, or too lightly, or to people who just want to have it and aren't willing to do the work for it. We can all, I think, have empathy for those positions. I really think we can. Empathy doesn't mean you agree. Empathy does not mean you agree. It means you understand the intention behind that, even if it's disagreeable to you. It's really difficult to know the intention of someone, which is why in churches that have closed communion, explicitly closed, you kind of have to have a one-on-one with the pastor in order to receive the elements. Otherwise, y- you can come up and the pastor's like, see me this week. You know, really, really. Um, and, and I will tell you, look, since, we're, since I'm being fully disclosing here, how many of you are familiar with the prayer of humble access It happens in right 1? Lord, we're not worthy to eat the crumbs under your table. I think it's a lovely prayer. It happens at exactly the wrong place in the liturgy, which is why we don't do it, because I can't pray that prayer authentically. When I'm up there celebrating the Eucharist, I'm the one praying on behalf of you, with you, but I'm the one doing it. The reason I don't like the prayer, where it happens in the service, is because you've already confessed and been absolved, which means you are worthy to come to God's table. So to say the Eucharistic prayer and then say we're not worthy is like going backward in time. When God is asking us to go forward, that's the whole point of absolution is that we don't go backward. We go forward, which is why you don't hear it. Sorry. (laughs) I could move it before the confession, and then I could pray it with integrity. I hope that makes sense, though. That theologically, I do not think it happens at the right moment. Even though the words are very compelling. Of course, the answer is, we're not worthy, except when we're absolved, yes, we are. <laughs> we, weren't to be, we weren't worthy to be absolved. But God did that anyway. So having been made worthy, now we approach the throne of grace with confidence. Bob, I hope this is a helpful answer, and and I think, yeah. Maybe you could say that again. I think we are all unworthy, even at that moment. And, and this, I think, is the interesting thing about grace in general, right? Do we earn it? Do we deserve it? Or does God give it? And is grace grace precisely because it is unearned and undeserved? And and I think it's a really important question in any sacrament. In in full disclosure, if somebody says, I'd like to baptize my grandbaby, I say, I would love to be involved in that. What do we need to do? Come on Sunday. (laughs) We'll do it. I have colleagues, and there's nothing right or wrong about this. It's just different. I have colleagues that require couples to come to a six-hour class about baptismal instruction. Now, I don't even know what I would talk about for six hours. I wanna be honest with you. Because to me, baptism takes like 25 minutes to go over the whole deal, (laughs) historically through present. I sort of think, and you can find fault with this, you can, that if people want to be baptized, we should make it very easy for them to be baptized. It should not be difficult. The church should be very happy that anybody wants that. Not just in this day and age, but ever. We should be very happy that people want that, even if they have no intention of ever going to church again in their lives. If it didn't mean something to them or their families, they wouldn't want it. I think that's the, 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 the operant... Um, the operant hypothesis. And and, and this, I think, is really more about the question of grace. Do I anoint people with holy oil when they're in a state of sin? You better believe it. (laughs) That's part of the oil, right? Is in the middle of pain level nine. You ever met somebody in pain level nine? You ever been in pain level nine? I have not been at pain level nine. I recently saw someone at pain level 10 who's a major general and Vietnam veteran and has been shot 15 times. And he said, I'm at pain level 10. So he can't imagine. Me, I would be dead (laughs) in pain level 10, right? And he wasn't saying wholesome words. I'll just let you know. (laughs) And that's exactly why I anointed him with oil. Does it sort of make sense? Again, the sacraments... I think are for the living, they're for the living, and they're meant to support our life.
4: I agree with Bob's position in that when we start picking and choosing who gets to have which sacrament, it's, it's back to animal form and some of us are more equal than others. And, and who decides who's more equal?
0: Well, I think this is actually a very good place to park our conversation. It's about access to sacraments in general. And remember, I think we're a strong enough group where we can have this agreement on this. I really do. Because I think what we understand is, regardless of our position, you're going to be welcome to the Lord's table every week. That's a foregone conclusion. You're going to be welcome to have your grandchildren and your children baptized whenever you'd like. Regardless your position. Uh, this is why I think we're healthy enough to disagree if we do. And this is the time because <laughs> this is important. This is the kind of thing we never talk about is access to sacraments because you know who gives them? Your priest. You know who denies them? Your priest. Frankly, you never get to say much about it, which is just a little too bad, don't you think? The question is, have I ever denied a sacrament? No. In fact, as I've told you, I've I've given ones I shouldn't have given, like I anointed a dead woman. But remember, the sacrament wasn't for her. It was for the living people around her. So I gave it to them. I didn't give it to her. I know that's strange. (laughs) We
2: talked about adult baptism last week is representing a sacrament being given to the person receiving that sacrament, as if that wasn't done for all the people around them. And I reflected on my adult baptism, and believe me, it was done for all those people around me, too, much the same as uh, an infant baptism is, so...
0: I think this is really helpful, so I'd ask you, those of you that have been married before, to think through what changed at your marriage right. What changed? And I think this is important. Whether baptism or Eucharist or marriage, what, what changed? Did your relationship fundamentally change in an instant? Was the sacrament for the husband and wife only, or was it also for everybody w- watching? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Sometimes I think we look at this too shortly. You know, we have a prayer that happens at the marriage, rite that all married persons may be strengthened in their vows, by the vows the couple makes, and that all human beings in general, married or not, would be strengthened in the vows, that the Lord Jesus Christ has given them uh, and this is an interesting thing I can tell you when I got married I sort of thought the marriage w- this is funny thing about sacraments I think I sort of thought the right was more for my parents and my in-laws and our community who needed the right who needed the right to view us as a couple Come to find out that the right allowed me to use language that I am still trying to live into. I've kind of made it after year 10, and that is after the right, you now say, this is my husband, this is my wife. And those words are much more powerful than I thought they would be. I don't know if you found that in your relationships. It's another thing having children, because the first couple of years I felt like a babysitter, (laughs) But to have my child call me dad, that was like a change in my identity forever. I don't don't know if that makes sense. And the same with using words like husband and wife, and I was surprised. I was surprised by what those words would do for me and for my spouse and my identity, if, if that sort of makes sense.
4: Another question you asked is, did you feel a change when you were married? I think pretty much. Yeah. No, but later it made a big change. It was like when t- the going got rough, yes. I had made um, a commitment before my friends and family and community and the world. And that is sacramental to me.
5: Yeah.
4: It was important at those r- rough times. After, what, seven years, they start really... You. Well, I've been married 50, 52 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and of course you know, right, that's why the really one of the key moments in the service is when the celebrant or officiant says, well, all of you witnessing these vows do all in your power to support these persons in their marriage. And we often rather blithely say we will. But when we say we will, and we follow through is when the sacrament happened for all of us. I think. I'm I'm afraid I'm being very heavy-handed. <laughs> One, two, is that
6: okay? So we just started coming here, my husband and I. He's not here today, but so I don't necessarily have... Um, grounds I guess here but I have been raised in the church and I'm of the millennial generation so we all know that um, a lot of millennials don't get married they live together their whole lives never get married it's not important to them um, it's just a generational difference and my husband and I we dated for 10 years we lived together we bought a house we did all that before we got married because for us the sacrament of marriage is very important and we needed to be sure that we were going to be able to do it. And part of that is, we all know, budgeting and living a family life and taking care of each other. And so I think one thing about this issue that maybe not worries me but is a, is a moment for pause is this same-sex marriage is a political issue. We can all agree on that. And so I hope that people continue to view marriage in the same way. And it's the people will come and ask for the sacrament the same reasons because they love each other they want a family together they whatever the sacrament is to them and i hope that it and it's your job right to make sure that um people aren't coming for the wrong reasons and so i i don't know i when you say that the husband saying husband and wife we we were together like i said for 10 years it was a profound difference Mm -hmm. once we were married in the church it was a profound difference for us
0: thank you
7: So, Mike, I've appreciated the Vestry asking for this discussion, and I've appreciated the three sessions that we've had. Uh, I think this kind of discussion is what I call an emotional discussion, rather than a logical one. And it's the kind of discussion that's most challenging for me as an engineer, because an engineer, I tend to address things as you are, I think, as a mathematician, and I try to address it in a very logical fashion. And so I appreciate going through uh, the, the Bible and looking at the Bible readings from a logical perspective. But I think I also understand that people start in an emotional place mm-hmm. and a following a logical discussion rarely moves people to a different emotional place. It, it takes time and it takes sincere discussions and it still takes a lot more time for people's emotional place to change. And I think we've begun maybe a journey, but it would be uh, probably not appropriate to believe we have achieved whatever we were looking to achieve in such a short time. Yeah. It's the beginning of a journey. Uh, and, I th- and I think Bob's point of, you know, is it right for us to deny grace to anybody is a good place to start. Uh, if you feel comfortable denying grace with somebody, you know, th- you're starting in an emotional place. There can't, uh, and I think if you uh, understand, try and understand your own emotions, why you feel that way is a beginning. And generally you feel that way because that was the way you were raised. You spent, you know, a long time doing that way, and it feels right. It's not a logical discussion. Yeah. It's an emotional one. But we've begun a journey.
0: I I think that's a really important statement, Lewis, and and I think if it's okay to follow up, um, I've, I've probably made known that I grew up extremely fundamentalist, and the way I grew up was that the Bible was to be read literally, and that it was to be taken as the absolute truth, that if science ever disagreed with the Bible, science was wrong. Just out of curiosity, did anybody share that upbringing? Just a few of us. This is one of those issues Right. This is one of those issues that I was told the Bible is very clear on, which is why I wanted to walk us through the relative clarity and unclarity that's in Scripture, because that's important to me. Um, what I discovered a long time ago about myself, and it could be because, um, in my memory at least, I, I tested as INTJ. Jay is right. I don't know about everything else, but Jay is right. Um, is that um, I did not, and I still do not, live only in my head. I continue to have these values that were instilled in me that are so sort of deep down and subconscious that I have these great opinions about, but frankly, they haven't made it all the way down into my values. And the things uh, that made me really reconsider were meeting real human beings that, and then discovering that they were the labels I'd been taught to avoid. So I had a professor, I've told you this before, I think, in my undergrad, where I was a math major, but a religious studies major as well. She was a professor of the Old Testament, and I would tell you, even though she did not believe women could be ministers, she believed they could be teachers, which was weird, because scripture says women can't teach men. That's what she was doing. I guess I was 19, so maybe I didn't qualify. But um, this lady was my pastor. Whether she accepted it, I knew it. And that was my issue with women in ministry. See, before that, it had not really been about real people. It had been about these hypothetical people. It's very easy for me to dismiss labels and ideas, much harder to dismiss real people. The first gay friend that I had was my friend, and then I found out he was gay. And this was the problem for me, was was that revelation going to undo all of the positive experiences I'd had, because they'd been very positive. And quite honestly, uh, there are times in my life where I have let that happen. But in this case, God, it was an uncomfortable couple of months because I was asked to reconsider something that was fundamental in my values, that this is not okay, and yet here's a friendship that I really value. And was I going to close myself off to this human being or not? And I I think, Lewis, that in general, we do approach things logically, particularly as engineers, but there is a bifurcation in us, right? And in some ways, maybe, we need our head's permission for our heart to go where it wants to go. As engineers, maybe we need our head's permission. I don't know uh, people that, maybe people work other ways than that. I don't. I, I need my head's permission, but just because I have my head's permission doesn't mean my heart will grow. Do you, you, you sort of know what I mean? They're not guaranteed. They kind of have to go together. And, and, and I would say that that's true whatever the issue Is It occurred to me that there's this interesting thing that happens with sacramentality that I don't know if we're there, and I'm just going to go ahead and expose you to it. When the church decided that same-sex relationships are sacramental in 2015, the national church, again, that's trickling down or isn't in different dioceses or parishes or missions, right, and in individual lives, it's changing. I almost think that the decision is asking us to say, well, it's it's okay for them. We could approach it as, well, it's okay. That is, if you're one of those folk, it'll be okay. But I almost think the bigger position is asking me when I envision the life of my child, when I daydream about what I want for him and for her, for me to daydream about the nature of their relationship instead of the gender of their partner. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I think the reason this is so difficult for us is because we didn't daydream that way. And and I would tell you very fairly about myself that while I think I can do this from my daughter in a same-sex relationship, I still, my own head, as, as educated and wise as it is, like I think it is, transgender would be really hard for me. Not because I think it's bad, it just would be hard. I think I would do it right. Friends, I think I would do it right. But I think it would be really hard for me. And I think that's what's at stake in our sacramentality is the dreams we have for our children. I, I, hope, I hope that makes sense. Sacraments are not plan B's. They're not, well, since you've picked that, we'll give you this. They're more like, I'm so glad you've made it here. I've been dreaming you would. That I think we're we're trying to grow into. Or I don't know about trying. (laughs) I think that's the next milestone in our journey. Does that maybe make sense? Samuel, I think I saw your hand up.
1: Just speaking again about the vestry process, we also thought it was important to have this conversation outside (coughs) of the consideration of a request from a specific couple. Because if this had been the result of someone asking to get married uh, in in the church, and Mikey come to us with that, our attitudes might have either been about that couple, and or and/or that couple may have felt undue pressure on them as if they were being scrutinized as opposed to the issue itself being considered carefully um, and so while these are all heart and head issues and philosophical and emotional issues logical and emotional issues sometimes until you put a face with it I- you don't feel it in the way that, that you're talking about now but we wanted to approach this from the philosophical logical remove so that people wouldn't get in the way and people wouldn't feel like they were also being judged.
0: It's helpful. One, two, is that okay?
5: Yeah, Father Mike, I'm still a little confused. You know, you and I were talking about this last week about um, the state is the one that marries two couples. Uh, but, uh, you know, it. if I remember correctly, the Constitution says that the church and state will be separate. So, um, you know, I know or I've heard of couples going to the Justice of Peace and getting a marriage license and then they feel like, well, I'm not really married till I get a priest or a preacher to to marry me, and uh, I'm still confused on uh, how the s- the state, you know, got that uh, power to to marry a couple. Thanks. So just, I mean, the brief history, and
0: again, we could spend a whole course on on uh, frankly government and religion and still not do this justice, right, is that the, um, the original folks who migrated here from England were not interested in religious diversity, nor tolerance, nor respect. They were Puritans who were interested in purifying the Anglican church, that is the Church of England, uh, to the point that they were toxic, and the king said, get out. <laughs> so when they came to America, they wanted to live their way. In which church and state were not separate, but were completely combined with their leaders as religious and civil authorities together. And frankly, that's where it comes from, is that as much as Anne Hutchison and Roger Williams have pushed for separation of church and state, you know these people, right? These are Baptists, they pushed really hard for separation of church and state, largely because they were in the minority and were being discriminated against, and no longer wanted to be discriminated against, you see. Um, It hasn't quite matriculated down, and this is probably one of the biggest issues left in which marriage is both a church word and a civil word. Which is an interesting reality because if you look in your prayer book, we have the sacrament of marriage and then we have the blessing of a civil union. That is, we have different rights for people who I'm acting as the efficient, or a judge has been the efficient, and now I'm blessing them on behalf of the church. And that is really strange, don't you think? That the nation gives marriages instead of unions. Because of course, all that happens nationally when you fill out a marriage license is that the two of you become one economic entity. And you are not required to say any sort of vows to do that. Are you aware of this? And a vows. You're just one economic y- unit. And we call that marriage socially. We do. And this is where we have not figured out our nomenclature. We just haven't. And this is an interesting thing that in the prayer book, I can bless that union instead of actually marrying that couple. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? So we've got this one word, marriage, that means radically different things governmentally and ecclesially, and we have not done a good job of parsing those meanings out. As I told you two weeks ago, in Germany, no one is married, according to the government. People are only unified. You want a marriage, you go to church, you go to the synagogue, you go to the mosque. The government does not do marriage. It doesn't matter that I think that's the right approach. We're not doing that now. <laughs> but I kind of wish we were. I think it would make this issue a whole lot easier for us. It's not satisfying, Ted, but that's the history.
3: <laughs> so a couple things I was thinking about this morning. One is um, the decision, right, the vestry needs to make is going to make this decision. And I am hopeful that we're mature enough to accept their decision one way or another. And I know we are. So I think that's a wonderful thing for our community. Um, Another thing is uh, trying to catch up on my readings through Luke this morning, a little behind. Um, I was going through and the Pharisees were questioning Christ about healing a crippled man on the Sabbath. And Christ's response was, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to evil, to save life or to destroy it? So to me, when I think about marriage, it's to do good together, and uh, bringing two people closer to God is to promote life. So that's how I look at this, and I hope we're willing to make a decision that's more towards doing good.
0: I think that we're we're close to time, and so what I want to ask is, would you like to meet about this one more time? Does anybody have residual thoughts or um, expressions or study you'd like to have next week? (laughs) Okay. I think that's okay. I think the thing that's before us as a church, right, is not just will we accept what the vestry decides on our behalf, which I do think that's important. I think the question is how much we'll live in any decision that the vestry makes, into a fuller discussion of sacramentality, into what we are known for as a church. I can tell you that my last church in Coronado, and you may think, oh, California is liberal. It is not. Not in Coronado, California. There were seven admirals in my parish and 30 captains in the Navy. This is Navy Town, USA, Coronado, and if you know anything about elections, San Diego is red, always red, or maybe slightly purple. But it is most certainly not Los Angeles, nor is it Berkeley. This is important to know. We had, when I was the associate rector, two couples asked to have a marriage license that would only be valid in the state of California. This was before the Supreme Court had made their decision. In 2015, striking down DOMA. So this was in 2014. Does this sort of make sense? California's proposition system had allowed us to do gay marriages that would of course not be federally recognized just within California. They were one of many states like New Hampshire and Massachusetts where this sort of happened early. And our bishop gave us permission to do exactly what we're doing here, that is, for the vestry to vote. <laughs> and if the vestry voted, we could have... S- we could give the church's blessing on a civil marriage. Does this make sense? General convention had not said that same-sex marriage was a sacrament, so we could give the church's blessing on a civil marriage. And in that instance, we would represent the state, civilly unifying people, but the church's blessing, not marrying. Does that make sense? So we had two couples. One was a couple from Texas. The, the, the niece of our service chair wanted to be married. They'd been together for something like 12 years. They'd raised two or three children, and they couldn't be married in Texas. And they wanted the church's marriage On their marriage. The other was a couple one of whom had attended our day school even though he was Mormon and because it was such a spiritual place and because of course the Mormon church would never give him marriage, would never do it, still won't do it. I just want to make sure that's clear. He thought his relationship was sacramental and he dared ask the church to recognize it. So we held three meetings Kind of like these. And you know the interesting thing was, the biggest concern in the parish was whether or not we would become a gay wedding chapel, because he didn't want to do that. They, they wanted to be a church. <laughs> Once they heard, of course, that we can say no whenever we like. And that the point was not to be that entity, but to be a place that celebrates intentional, thoughtful relationships that through counseling we believe we can celebrate. They said, oh, then this is great. I mean, that was sort of (laughs) the interesting thing. And so we were the second church in the Diocese of San Diego to do these things. Both of those couples are still together together. I'm telling you this not just because the decision before us is about whether we will allow these things to be in our sanctuary. The question is whether we will celebrate that these things happen in God's presence, I think. Or that we'll respect enough that these things happen. And then I think the question before us that that John and Bob both asked that I think is really important is when we say that the Episcopal Church welcomes you, the question is what we welcome people to do. Do we welcome people to behave like we do, or do we invite them to behave as God appreciates them? I think that's a very different question. Sometimes we welcome people if they do what we do. Hopefully, we invite people to be who they are, and we uphold them. And this is one of those interesting things because, you know, in the last four months, I've had three calls asking me whether or not gay people will be safe here. Will they be safe? Because they're not safe at their church. In fact, the diocese has called me and asked, there's a couple with a gay teenager, will they be safe at your church? You know what I have to tell them is, I sure think so. I sure think so. Uh, Why? Because I don't know, John. Well, I didn't think, and this comes back to something you said, right? Or Jim said. Everybody's welcome at the Lord's table. We make that sacrament open, which is big of us. The question is, what other sacraments do we open or close? You know? Safety can be really, really hard because it's one thing to be welcome and it's another thing to be told that you're welcome to do blank but not blank. And I think Jim raised that point. What are we welcoming people to do? Oh, yes, in fact, we do. And if you don't know them, it's because they have decided it's not safe. Is that okay to say? <laughs> To be out. I think to be out. To be out. Yeah. And I think this is a challenge for us, not just about sacramentality, but what our invitation and what our welcome look like. You know, I can tell you uh, that, that gay couples are looking for words like open and affirming. And quite honestly, they often won't go into a building unless they see those words because they know that they could just get heard again. I don't know if we're going to use it, I mean, y'all here, I don't know if we're going to use those words. I don't know the answer to that. And and I'm not necessarily pushing a position. I mean that what's tied up in this issue is something bigger than it appears. This is really about whom we invite and whom we welcome and whom we celebrate. Even if it's difficult for us. and And I think this is the key, right? The goal of these sessions is not to convert your mindset. The question is for us to leave room for other people. And what leaving room looks like? Is it just giving them space that I don't have to go to? Is it changing the way I treat and interact with people who act differently than I do? I I mean, I think think we could spend a lot of time on this. (laughs) Would
4: Would it be fair to say the goal is for those other people not to be other people
0: anymore, but just to be part of us? I sure think that's God's goal. Sometimes I don't know if that's ours, but I, I sure think that's God's goal. Hey, well, you know, we got church in five minutes. And I am. applaud you. applaud you for your attention and thoughtfulness. Thank you very much.